Hey everyone, before we start tonight, I just wanted to share a little bit of information and some insight into what's been going on in regards to legislation here in the United States. There's a substantial amount of new legislation in the works that either has or will have a direct effect on amphibian, reptile, invertebrate, and avian hobbyists in various states in different capacities. That said, if we want to continue in our respective passions, we must act in ways that are responsible to maintain our credibility and to keep our reputation sterling. If we don't take care of our hobby ourselves, others will do it for us. So I encourage all of you to act responsibly and ethically. Support legitimate organizations that advocate for our interests. I'm not saying this to stir up any controversy. I'm saying it because it is a matter of fact. If you agree with the legislation, I respect your perspective. However, I do believe that these issues can be solved through cooperation and input from both sides rather than a single broad sweeping action from one. Now, that said, I wish everyone well, and let's move on to tonight's episode. You're listening to Amphibicast. Hey everyone, welcome back. Tonight's episode is going to touch on a couple of things, and I've got a pretty pretty unique situation here because I've actually got a guest straight from Australia, and uh, his name is Dean Jansen of Vivscape. But first, I kind of want to discuss what we're going to frame the episode on, and I was thinking about what makes each hobby unique, and every hobby has its own hallmark. When we discuss any particular hobby with someone else who might not be familiar with it, there's usually some sort of general trait, idea, object, etc. that defines that hobby as a whole. I mean, for example, in the ball python community, morphs are the distinct hallmark. You know, everyone who thinks about ball pythons thinks about morphs. And I was thinking, well, what really is a significant hallmark that's unique to the amphibian hobby? And the first thing that came to mind was vivarium builds. If we pick the vivarium as kind of the gold standard when it comes to amphibian husbandry, I think it's a great thing for us because our build techniques are generally... Well, I mean, not to toot my own horn, but they're generally more advanced than most other hobbyists. And I feel like a lot of hobbyists in other niches look up to us for inspiration. And Dean has a YouTube channel and he makes some really impressive builds. And many of them are actually horizontal to vertical conversions. If you don't know what that is, we'll get onto that in a little bit. But Dean essentially makes his vivariums almost from scratch. And he puts a lot of effort into it and a lot of work. And we're going to discuss how he works, and what some of his methods are for building some really impressive vivariums. And then we're going to touch on some unique characteristics that are, you know, the hobby in Australia. Because I'm in the U.S., a lot of my listeners are in the U.K. and Europe, and we really don't have a tremendous amount of input from Australia. So Dean's going to enlighten us in terms of what the hobby is like there, because from what I understand, it's actually pretty different from where it is elsewhere in the world. So uh, first and foremost, Dean, welcome. What's going on, man? Thank you for being on the show. No, thank you. Thank you for having me. No, my pleasure. My pleasure. You know, it's funny, Dean. I, I, I was thinking, um, <laughs> when I, before I called you, I was thinking about that episode of The Simpsons where, where Bart calls Australia. And he, he got like, a, the guy he called in Australia got like a $900 pill f- uh, phone bill. And I just kept thinking, I was like, oh, and then I was like, oh no, we're using WhatsApp. So I don't have to pay for the, um, uh, you know, like the phone bill. Because Call, I looked into it and like calling here from the U S like by phone is like astronomically expensive. So 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it definitely is definitely is expensive. That's for sure. Yeah, thanks for modern technology. So, t- <laughs> t- t- tell us your story. Tell us about you. What was your first experience with animals like, and what led you to where you are today? Um, I mean, you know, pretty much ever since I was born, I've always loved animals. Um, pretty much my whole family are into animals. Um, my first introduction into sort of the herb side of things. Um, I had an uncle, or have an uncle that um, used to quite oftenly come down and see us. Um, we, we live about you know an hour, hour and a half away from where he is. Um, and then eventually, once he sort of got married off and and built his own house and stuff like that, we didn't see him all that much. And uh, I remember going up there, and he said to us, "Oh, do you want to uh, come into the garage and and have a look at all my animals?" And I was like, "Animals? Okay, well, all right, we'll go and have a look." And uh, at the time, I was only sort of grade six, primary school. Um, and yeah, you had all these reptiles and he had a full wall just dedicated to reptiles and amphibians. And, uh, I was just like, wow, this is crazy. I've never really been up this close to animals like this before. And it really got my mind thinking, you know, about them and stuff after we left. And anyway, nothing really happened after that for a little while. And, uh, I started high school when we were, uh, doing a, uh, golf course, uh, trip and we were, you know, playing golf and that. And I was, uh, playing with a couple of guys that, uh, their um, stepfather actually had some snakes. And uh, we hit the ball down the fairway, and we just see this little little lizard bolting across the uh, fairway. And uh, we ran and ran after it, and they chucked their jumper on it, and uh, we picked it up and had a look at it and stuff like that. None of us knew exactly what it was, but it spiked my interest, and I, I went home and ended up uh, doing some research and finding out that it was a uh, Jackie dragon. Uh, and pretty much, yeah, ever since after that, I was kind of hooked, you know. And I, as I realized more and more, um, people around me actually had reptiles, and I never actually really noticed until I actually started to take an interest in these animals. And uh, I remember uh, going looking for some frogs, and uh, the, there was a guy, you know, you know, moving rocks and moving wood and looking around. I was like, I wonder what he's doing. So I went over and introduced myself, and... Uh, we started talking. He goes, oh, I'm actually looking for frogs and lizards and stuff like that. I'm like, oh, really? I'm, you know, I'm doing the same thing. And we got talking, and he had quite a few animals at home. So we went back to his house and saw his animals, and uh, we were talking about you know, getting into the hobby and getting a license to be able to inquire you know, more animals and stuff like that. Because obviously here in Australia, it's actually – or in Victoria anyway, it's, it's illegal to you know, keep captive animals, you know, they, wild animals um and uh yeah and ever since then we've become good mates and we pretty much talk on a weekly basis and uh yeah ever since then it's been downhill ever since i uh i acquired my wildlife license uh in 2003 um and yeah it pretty much skyrocketed ever since then i uh my first two animals on license were uh a green tree frog and a giant tree frog uh, which is our largest um you know tree frog we have in australia and, um, yeah, ever since then, it was just more lizards, uh, more frogs. I eventually got some snakes. Mum and dad allowed me to get some because I didn't really like them too much. Um, and, yeah, ever since then, I've just been hooked. So it's 19 years later and I'm still going. So I noticed that your vivarium builds on your YouTube channel are, I mean, they're really impressive. And I was just curious, what, what motivated you to start the channel and focus it on builds? Um, I guess the, the hobby here in Australia is, uh, more sort of focused towards the snakes and, and, you know, larger lizards and stuff like that. And 
the frogs weren't really getting, you know, too much, um, you know, interest and stuff like that. And I thought, how can I, you know, how can I sort of encourage more people to keep frogs? And, you know, the way I thought it was by, um, you know, building, you know, custom vivariums and then watching a lot of the people overseas, like America and Europe and stuff like that. Um, I soon, you know, got into building those and pretty much from the very start, I, I always enjoyed, um, you know, decking out the enclosure and stuff like that before getting the animal. Um, and then obviously having an interest in plants as well, it just, you know, made me really want to get into, you know, building vivariums and paludariums. And I thought, well, how can I push this in the hobby um, here in Australia? And um, so then I thought if I start the channel, um, you know, it's just going to help people out. Um, and, yeah, that's pretty much how I got started in building vivariums. Um, yeah, just doing lots of research and, um, yeah, focusing on the frogs, it kind of started pushing me that way. And um, I had a couple of mates that um, kept telling me, you know, you need to start a uh, YouTube channel. And I'm not really one for, you know, getting in front of a camera or anything like that. Um, kind of, you know, a bit more of a shy person. And uh, yeah, kind of pushed myself to do that. And I actually started to really enjoy it. And, um, you know, started to get a few people, you know, getting in contact with me and asking questions and stuff like that. And, it was just a really good way to sort of meet people in the hobby here as well. And not only here, but you know, sort of overseas as well. So, I noticed that a lot of the builds you do are actually aquarium conversions, where you'll do a horizontal to vertical conversion. Um, what attracts you to these types of builds? Um, I mean, probably due to the frogs that I keep. I mean, a lot of the frogs that I like to keep are tree frogs. I mean, they interest me the most. Um, and I mean, here in Australia, we don't have any companies that are building uh, the Euro slider style tanks. Um, and the shelving that I get um, here, I wanted to custom build tanks that would fit into these shelves really nicely. And um, I did some research and found some, um, you know, just your know, stock standard four foot glass fish tanks. And I thought, well, if I can use that as a outer shell and then, and then you know, take the one side off to use that as a top, um, take all the ribbing off the front of the tank, off the top of the tank, and then use that as the front. Um, I can then get these, you know, uh, vertical tanks where the frogs will, you know, really enjoy being able to climb up and down and stuff like that. Um, and then also, because a lot of my animals are here in the garage, it's very hard to um, monitor and, and, you know, keep a steady ambient temperature in here. So with the tanks being vertical, it gives you a good uh, gradient in temperature from top to bottom of the tank. And it normally fluctuates roughly around four to five degrees from the bottom of the tank to the top of the tank. It allows the frogs just to be able to move up and down a little bit more and, you know, get their comfortable spot throughout the day. Um, and I just, I, for me, I just personally really like the really tall tanks. I think they look super cool and, you know, you can really get, you're quite creative with the, you know, your wood layout and, you know, you, you set the plants down in the bottom of the tank and, you know, they just really grow up to the light and stuff like that. And yeah, just, just I thought, you know, try something different. I mean, you know, I can custom build the whole outer shell of the tank. And I thought, well, if I've got all these four foot tanks laying around, you know, why not try with these first and see if it actually works properly. And uh, yeah, and that's how I got started. So that's, that's pretty cool. I've never done it myself. I've seen a few YouTube videos out there of people doing horizontal to vertical conversions. Um, I mean, not so much with the tree frogs here. That's kind of common with like crested gecko hobbyists and some of the invert hobbyists are really big on doing the, the vertical conversions. But 
If an average person wanted to do a vertical conversion, I mean, can you talk us through the process from the ground up? I mean, how would you, how would you start out doing a vertical conversion like you would do in one of your videos? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I just get a pretty basic, simple four-foot glass tank. Um, I take one of the sides out, which is a solid piece of glass. Um, I then get some glass cut um, to create a sep two separate pieces of glass so that I have a gap in the middle uh, for some ventilation. Um, I then take the glass ribbing out of the top of the tank, which helps support the glass when it's full of water for aquariums. I take that out, and then I get four pieces of glass cut. I get the front piece of glass, um, the substrate dam, and then two um, substrate supports um, on, on both sides. Um, and I just glue that all in. Um, one thing I do differently is I put a small piece of aluminium underneath the glass tracking. Um, because these the doors aren't really wide, but they're quite tall, so there is a little bit of weight in this in the doors, and they're five mil thick glass. Um, so I just put that little bit of aluminium just to reinforce the plastic, so it doesn't flex and bend on the backside, so the glass doesn't drop out of the top. Um, and then, pretty much apart from that, it's just a little bit of fly screen, um, a little bit of cornicing. Um, yeah, I drill the top of the tank for the misting nozzles, um, and then I drill the back of the tank for drainage so the water doesn't uh, fill up and cascade over that Euro vent. Um, but apart from that, they're pretty simple. I just use the outer shell of an existing tank, and I just custom the front and the top, and um, you pretty much got a Euro slider tank ready to go. What about backgrounds? We, we talked a little bit before we started recording that you can't get access to, I mean, here in the United States, we, it's polyethylene foam. It goes by the, I don't know if I can say the brand name, but it's, it's great stuff. Yep. <laughs> that sounds far <laughs> yeah. apart enough, right? Not to be an endorsement. <laughs> so you guys, you can't get that product there in Australia though. So what are you using for your background builds? Yeah. So the um, expanding foam that I use here, it's just a uh, white expanding foam. It's just the stuff that you would normally use for um, you know, holes in bricks when you're doing, you know, from internal to external uh, piping and stuff like that. Um, I just use just um, whatever cheap foam I can get from our local hardware stores, Bunnings. Um, and, yeah, I just spray it on. Um, the thing that I like to do prior to putting the foam onto the tank, um, because foam does over time um, shrink when it dries out, um, so I like to uh, glue my hardscape, so all my wood and rocks, to the back of the tank prior to expand foaming. That way the uh, expand foam has something to hold on to because um, the last thing I want is to have the tank grow in, have the frogs in the tank, and then the, you know, the background starts separating from the glass. Um, so then I do that. And then um, as I'm covering the foam, I also put a bead of silicon along the very front as well so that way you don't get any moisture going behind the foam um, and that way it doesn't open up so you don't allow frogs to get in behind there. Um, but yeah, apart from that, it's just, yeah, just the simple, you know, cheap foam you can get from Bunnings or, your, you know, your local hardware store. Um, and then, yeah, just spray it on and obviously, you know, keeping in mind, you know, have a, an idea on, you know, what you're wanting to keep and, um, you know, the, the look that you're going for and stuff like that. Um, yeah, apart from that, it's just, Simple expanding foam, uh, dried cocoa peat with silicon. I just I do the old school way. Uh, we don't have dry lock here either, so uh, we've got to use kind of like pond sealers and stuff like that with you know coloured oxides and stuff in them. But for the most part, I I get fairly good success with the uh, dried cocoa peat over foam technique. So I just kind of stick to that for the time being, and yeah, so. 
Is there a reason why a lot of these products aren't available in the Australia? Is it, is it just different regulations or they're just coincidentally just not available? Uh, yeah, I'd say just, just not available. I mean, a lot, a lot of the foams that we have here, they're all just, you know, your plain white foam. We don't really have any of that kind of black landscapers foam and stuff like that. Um, I know that there's a company, an a, um, aquarium a company that um, started making uh, black uh, landscaping foam. Um, but it's just, it's quite expensive um, per can. It's like $25 per can. And, um, you know, for me to do all these tanks, you know, I've, I've you know, got to fill up one wall and then I'm doing the other side of the garage as well. So by the end, I'm going to have r- roughly 25 tanks. It's just going to cost me so much. And, you know, I roughly go through three cans per tank um, and I get the really tall, tall um, cans. I don't have one here, so I don't know the exact amount that's in the can, but... They do last quite a while, um, and once you've covered the foam, you, you almost you can't see the color of it anyway. So it's it's expensive here too. The mm-hmm. the the pond foam that they market, which is the the black foam, is like twice the price of the just the plain white stuff. The fire the fire block the orange is is um, that's expensive too. But I don't know if it would be wise to use fire block because you typically you use that between like you said earlier with piping you use that basically to act as a you know uh to fill a gap between two spots in a building so that fire couldn't pass from one side to the other i don't know if that has additives in it that makes it unsafe i personally never used it but the 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 black stuff is it's it's better but i mean you're not necessarily from what you're telling me you're not really missing like that much other than maybe the adherence like i didn't realize that your stuff had a hard time adhering to the glass like after it got wet yeah yeah i mean the expanding foam, because it, it dries with such a hard shell over the foam, um, it doesn't really stick to the glass too well. Like once it's set, you can pretty much get your finger behind it and pluck it straight off the glass. Um, so that's why I use the silicon and the hardscape. Gluing it to the glass just helps the foam adhere better, um, stops it from separating. So Interesting. Interesting. I guess, I mean, I'm, we're spoiled here, I guess. I didn't realize that we had so many things here that you guys don't have over there. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's it. That's uh, I watch a lot of, uh, you know, the YouTubers in America and uh, yeah, I just like, I wish we had that kind of stuff here. Just make it so much easier. But um, yeah, unfortunately you just got to do a little bit more research and obviously read the additives on the, on the back of the can, you know, on the expanding foam or even on the silicon um and yeah just use what you can that's available i mean we we do have a lot of stuff that's here that is available it's just different to anywhere else what about lighting selection and i mean you you make your own misting systems or do you use a commercially available misting system uh yeah so i uh have to build my own misting systems just because here the mist kings are really expensive i mean by the time you import them and stuff like that as well they're it's almost like $25 a nozzle. Um, and like once again, by the time I have all these tanks, you know, set up and built, it's going to be like really expensive. Um, so all I did was I went on to uh, AliExpress, um, ordered all the quarter-inch um, quick connectors, uh, just the sort of stuff you would use to hook your fridge up to main water for your ice and stuff like that. Um, and then, yeah, I just got a 90-liter um, bin drilled that with a bulkhead and then used a diaphragm pump on a timer and yeah it's pretty pretty simple pretty much similar kind of setup to like a mist king except everything's white that's the only problem 
We have that. We have the same stuff available here too. I mean, not a lot of people realize that a quarter inch tubing is pretty standard. It's used for ice maker lines here. I mean, I, well, actually, you guys are metric, but I think you use, I think you use the same pipe size as we do here. We yeah, correct. Yes, I think you do. I mean, it's measured. It's measured in metrics, but it's it's quarter inch here is pretty much the same. I think it's like, uh, oh. God, I'm terrible with the metric system, but that's besides the point. <laughs> yeah, you're right though. The the white the white does kind of take away from the aesthetic, you know, aspect of it. Um, I mean, he I've seen black nozzles and tubing for sale here, but it's usually CPVC. So I don't know if it's available in different states here because like, <clears throat> all right, I was a plumber for, for 16 years, and I worked with a lot of different parts, and I found that a lot of the parts that were available here in the New York metropolitan area were kind of unique to this area and you could go to another part of the country, they might use a different material and it would be like readily available there. So I'd speak to other hobbyists and they'd say, oh yeah, go out and get this at the store. And I'd say, oh, they don't have it for sale here. It just doesn't, you know, it doesn't exist. So I guess if you really, really dug, you could probably find black quick connect fittings, but you might have to pay a premium for them or just really, really, really start looking. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. I, I have been doing some research lately just to try and find some of the black stuff because like you said, it does, your eye mainly focuses on the white parts of the tank and not the actual plants inside the tank, like even the uh, the glass tracking. The only two different colors that we've got here is the white and the brown. Um, and I've tried looking everywhere for the black stuff. Um, and, yeah, just we just don't seem to have it here. So that's why I've just gone, gone everything white, um, unfortunately. But, uh, yeah, I will keep looking, and uh, eventually I will upgrade everything to the black stuff for sure. So. What about your lighting and your, your plant selection is, I mean, you're, you're a landscaper, so I'm assuming you have a pretty decent knowledge of, of what plants need to grow and, and, you know, plant selection and what like appropriate lighting is. I mean, do you use like commercial plant lighting or do you use your own lighting or what do you, what do you use? Uh, so for my lighting, I just use, um, six watt, uh, COB LED lights. So they're just a, a naked LED, uh, strip light. Um, and then all I do is I solder on my own wires and then connect them to a female DC connector. And then they just run to a transformer with our uh, splitters and stuff like that. Um, the wattage out of those is quite low, but the brightness of the light is just incredible. And I mean, you know, we're talking four foot tall, uh, glass tanks and the light goes from top to bottom with no issues at all um i get the same amount of growth from the bottom to the top of the tank um and these lights i buy from aliexpress as well they're super cheap um you can buy them in bulk um yeah it's pretty much i mean with with plant lights and stuff like that you know you get a lot of the commercially um available lights and stuff like that and you know they tell you all these different things but i know for the most part with plants all they need is a a cool white light um, and with a high, you know, high percentage of light, um, they'll grow perfectly fine. Um, I mean, yeah, these are, these lights are 6,500 Kelvin rating. Um, and I'm not sure exactly the lumens of these lights, but super bright for such a small, small light. And I mean, yeah, they're just, they do so well. And the plant, the plant growth that I get in here is just incredible. Like I'm forever trimming, you know, and propagating for new tanks and new builds and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, that's, that's pretty much the lighting that I use. So I found that good lighting is really essential when it comes to plant growth, especially coloring up things like bromeliads. I mean, your bromeliads have got some really, really great coloration. It definitely shows that you're using like really good quality lighting. I mean, quality lighting doesn't have to be expensive. It can still be cheap, but you're going to see the difference between that and some of the, you know, the poor quality led lights. 
Correct, correct. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you know, a lot of us in the hobby, you know, we, we tend to use the more sort of, you know, from, you know, 5,700 to roughly 6,500 Kelvin. That gives you that really nice, clear daylight coloration. Um, if you go anything below, say, 5,700 down, you start to get more of an amber to yellow color light. Um, and the light is fine, but the problem is the, the output of the light isn't strong enough. Um, so, and then if you start going over 6,500, you start going to 7,000 Kelvin, it starts to go more blue and it doesn't look really naturalistic at all. Um, so that's why I kind of, I roughly sort of, you know, from 5,700 to 6,500 is my sort of, uh, limit. So that's about what I use around 65. That seems to be as close to bright natural sunlight as you can get without it looking too and too intense. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Do you do your planting in, in, cause you mentioned before that, you know, you have the lighting and you have a nice temperature gradient in the verticals. Do you plant your plants accordingly? I mean, do you plant them at different levels inside of the vivarium? Because sometimes I see people planting bromeliads like on the ground and they're not, you know, up as high getting them as much light. I mean, what's like, what's your method of, of choosing where your plants are going to be? Yeah. So, I mean, I like to do a lot of research prior to um, planting my tanks and stuff like that. And I mean, a lot of the philodendron plants, um, I plant closer to the bottom of the tank because um, as long as they're getting a good enough amount of light, they will grow to the very top of the tank. And wherever the light is, they'll grow straight towards that. Um, I've noticed in wild, in the wild, bromeliads are generally sort of, because they're epiphytic plants, they generally grow more on top of tree branches and fallen logs and stuff like that. Um, they're not really ever really embedded in the ground as such. Um, so I like to kind of have my bromeliads higher up in the tank and then have all the plants that are, you know, sort of, you know, um, creeping plants or uh, side covering plants. I like to have those uh, down lower so that way they can you know naturally grow up to the to the light like they should so i have to get on my plant game i i've been i've been using different uh, i guess cultivars you'd say bromeliads I, I i love the bromeliads but you you know you're right like you have to place them accordingly in the vivarium so that it looks you know i mean they don't grow out of the ground people so if you're doing that it's it's not quite right <laughs> I mean, how how, yeah, how, yeah. how big into plants are you? Because, I mean, I'll openly admit, I think I use like, I use three different plants. I use pothos. I use, well, more than three. I, I was using phytonia for a while. I was also using uh, ficus and uh, a couple, I mean, a couple other odds and ends here, but those are what kind of been my go-to. I mean, do you have preferences for certain species of plants that you'd like to use on the regular? Um, yeah, I mean, I do use the ficus, the pamela. Um, I think that grows really well. Um, and because we don't have magravia here, or we do, um, but I saw a piece for sale the other day and they went for $500 for a small cutting. So I thought, mm, I might pass on that until it's a bit cheaper. But, um, the, the ficus pamela for me is, is great. And, uh, it grows really well. It doesn't grow overboard for me. Um, because it stays quite cooler in the garage, it doesn't really um go crazy it doesn't start covering everything and strangling stuff and that so i tend to use that for um you know the background uh, coverings and stuff like that 
Um, and like the philodendrons, they're, they're awesome because, I mean, for the tree frogs, you know, they get a good size leaf and stuff on them. So the, the frogs do like to sit on them. Like I'm looking at one right now, one of my little dainty tree frogs, and he's just sitting there perched up on one of the leaves. And I mean, they, they utilize all the plants in the tanks. I mean, bromeliads here in Australia, we don't really have wild ones growing here, but a lot of people are like, well, why would you use bromeliads in a tank where the frogs don't naturally, you know, come in contact with these plants? And I just say, well, look, it's it's a still another good spot for these plants, for these frogs to sit on. I mean, they they love sitting there and perched up in those. You know, they have their bum sitting in you know in the water where the you know the brimlets, um, you know, hold that water in the in the inside and stuff like that. And the frogs sitting on them and they they absolutely love them. They um so yeah, I mean. I love I love my bromeliads, um, but I try and stick to maybe one or two different species per tank. Um, but I might use a different species of bromeliad in this in a different tank. Um, I try not to use bromeliads that have big spikes on them because frogs' skin is quite soft and they do tend to cut themselves, and obviously that leads to you know um, you know problems and infections in the skin and stuff like that. So I try to stick with the Nigeria fireballs, um, just because they have a really smooth edge on the on the leaves. Um, and then I like, I like sort of playing around with the different orchids and stuff like that, and um, you know, mounting them on on wood, and you know, put tucking the moss around the the orchids. It just looks really nice and really natural. And I mean, these are all epiphytic plants, so they don't really require any soil or nutrients to grow. As long as they've got bright lighting and moisture, these plants are going to grow perfectly fine. What about substrate? Do you have a preference when it comes to substrate? So for the paludariums, for the tree frogs, um, predominantly the whole bottom is just water. Um, and then for the substrate in the water, I just use uh, the ADA Amazonia aquasoil. Um, and I just use that just so that when I put the plants in the water, um, the plants you know grow nicely and like an aquascape would. Um, and it looks quite natural too. And it does slowly break down as well, which is, you know, is, is a good thing for the plants. You know, they, they use those nutrients and stuff like that in the water. Um, so that's pretty much what I use in the, uh, horizontal, uh, palad- uh, vivariums. Um, I just use a mixture of, um, cocoa peat, uh, sphagnum moss, orchid bark, um, which is one thing that I did wrong at the start was use orchid bark with fertilizer balls in it. Not a good idea. So I've changed all that. Um, but then I also use broken up leaf litter, um, yeah, bark and all that kind of stuff as well. And just mix up a, you know, a nice substrate um and yeah as long as it percolates and the water goes drains through the substrate nicely um it should work perfectly fine so that sounds similar to the abg mix that we use here there was uh um a you know abg stands for the atlantic botanical gardens they basically developed this i guess you could call it a substrate i think it was primarily for for orchid growth but it's pretty much made out of the same stuff that you that you mentioned i mean is that something you picked up from america or like you know i know you watched a lot of videos on youtube i don't know if it was that something you picked up from here or is that something that you kind of came up with independently um no it's, it is definitely something that i've you know picked up you know watching uh youtubers and stuff like that from america um yeah just you know working out the you know the soil mix and you know all that kind of stuff because you know, obviously you don't want it to get too stagnant you don't want it to you know really bind together because it doesn't allow water to percolate through it um, so yeah, that's definitely something that I, you know, I did some research, you know, throughout YouTube and Google and stuff like that. And, and, um, yeah, it, it seems to work really well for me. So I don't have any issues with that, but that's the only tank that I have, um, actual substrate in, um, that, that houses my banjo 
banjo frogs in there, but all the tree frogs, they all just have predominantly water on the bottom. So, I actually started doing that too with my Theliodermic corticale, my, my mossy frogs. I don't keep them, I don't really have a substrate per se. I just I have a bare bottom tank with some river stones on it and the, the cork bark, which comes out. So since they sort of dwell in that kind of, um, like, not, I don't want to say riverside, but that kind of like semi-aquatic niche, I, don't, I never really felt the need to put any kind of substrate in there because they don't make use of it anyway. They're always kind of half submerged. So it totally makes sense that you wouldn't use a conventional substrate with, with tree frogs. Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's it. And I mean, they utilize it as well. I mean, they go in there, you know, they'll lay their eggs and stuff in there um yeah so that's that's the reason why i did it it was it would have been a little bit more work if i had to you know do a substrate and stuff like that as well plus plus a water feature so when i started doing serious builds again and and by that i mean more more recently within the past couple of years when i really started making my own backgrounds i, I made quite a few mistakes i didn't carve my background foam properly and you know by that if anybody's not familiar with what i'm talking about it's just using like perfoam using polyurethane foam letting it set and then carving it i didn't carve it and then i tried to add uh peat you know peat or cocoa fiber to it and it just didn't adhere i mean that was like one of my like rookie mistakes even though i'd been in the hobby for a while i mean what did, what are some learning moments that you've had along the way like what are some mistakes that you've made that you might want to recommend to a beginner to kind of avoid yeah, um, I mean, yeah, definitely, definitely carving the foam is definitely one thing. Um, like I mentioned, you know, with with the foam, once it sets, it gets that hard, you know, outer shell, and the silicon doesn't want to stick to that. So then, when you, you know, you put your cocoa peat and stuff on top, it just, you know, it doesn't stick in places because the silicon doesn't want to adhere to it. Um, so definitely carving it, and also carving it as well, you you get a more sort of naturalistic look. You know, you can kind of carve shapes into it. You can carve ledges into it. You can you know, put planter pots in there if you want to. You can do all sorts of stuff with carving it. Um, but a couple of issues that I've had is um, with my tanks uh, prior to building them is, is mainly um, heating. Uh, the heating issue I've been having lately is uh, like heat mats under the tank to sort of heat the water up. Just hasn't been working too well. Um, I'm in the process of working out uh, using uh, heat cord on the back and sides of the tank to heat the water up to get the temperature, the ambient temperature up more. Um, but definitely one thing I'm going to be doing in the future, especially for I'm building a, a quite a large paludarium at the moment for my green tree frogs, the white tree frogs, um, and I will be drilling that on the back to run the cord for a, an you know, internal heater um, just because that's going to be a lot easier to you know heat up a larger body of water. Um, but apart from that, I mean, it's doing your research is, is is the best thing i mean i haven't really had too many issues just because i'm kind of you know watching a lot of youtubers as well and i mean troy goldberg he's like he's awesome when it comes to the vivariums and stuff like that and i sit there and i've watched his youtube videos over and over and over again and you know if it wasn't for somebody like him and and you know the countless many other people that are doing it as well um I, there would have been so many more mistakes um earlier on but um definitely you know learning different techniques for myself as well you know with the stuff that we have available here in australia um but apart from that they're they're super simple super easy um you can get really arty with them and stuff like that you know you can make them look really nice and you can you know your your wood layout you know you can really set them up nice and you know having having in mind you know the frogs that you're going to keep in there they're definitely going to utilize you know the way you set that tank up and 
Um, yeah, I mean, you know, having that top ventilation, it just, you know, allows allows the tank to breathe a lot nicer so you don't have any, you know, bacteria issues in the tank. And, um, yeah, so. Do you have a preference for woods? Because I, I just realized you might not be able to have access to the same woods that we have available here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so. I mean, at the start, um, I was using, um, you know, just wood that I could find around here. Um, but then I did realize that using, you know, woods that, you know, aren't sort of sitting in water and stuff like that, they, you know, it's 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 going to melt away and rot away over time. Um, so what I've started doing uh, is using the Malaysian driftwood. Um, I, I just really like the color and the look of it. You know, it's, it's quite heavy-bodied uh, wood. Um, and you know, obviously, it tolerates you know quite heavy, moist environments. Um, so yeah, that's that's my wood of preference for sure. I'm curious if it's less expensive for you there because Australia, you're, you're close. I mean, I don't re- technically, I don't really know that it actually comes from Malaysia, but I'm curious mm-hmm. if the wood pricing is different over there because we Malaysian driftwood here is is kind of on the expensive side. We have Malaysian driftwood, we have uh, it's ghostwood, manzanita. And what's the other one? Oh, it's eluding me at the moment. Uh, uh, Cypress is is pretty much available. They're they're all kind of on the expensive side, especially if you want to buy a specific piece and not buy remnants in bulk. Is is wood expensive in Australia? Yeah, yeah, it is pretty expensive. I mean, I just bought a, a big piece of Malaysian uh, driftwood the other day for this big paludarium that I'm currently building at the moment, and I would say it weighs probably. 25 30 kilos and it cost me a hundred dollars just for that piece of wood That's, that sounds about right yeah so i guess yeah. you're kind of you're kind of in it for some serious money no matter where you are on the globe oh yeah exactly exactly it's uh it's definitely not a cheap hobby that's for sure yeah no that, <laughs> i think everyone's aware, aware of that we have expensive tastes <laughs> in this hobby yeah, yeah, and that's you know, I mean, and you know, using you know, spending a little bit of money at the start definitely helps with you know the progression of the tank throughout its life. I mean, you know, using you know good wood like that, it's quite dense and isn't going to melt away. Is definitely going to you know help you later on down the track. You know, saves you having to cut all that foam out and you know destructing the tank and having to rebuild it again. So you know, definitely going out and using those better, you know, stronger woods that it can tolerate the you know you know, a lot of moisture and stuff like that is definitely going to help you out in the long run for sure. So that's why I don't, I don't, um, you know, cheap out on the wood anymore. I, you know, I make sure I get, you know, the right stuff. So it makes a really good focal point. That's another thing that I learned, I learned from watching Troy was the, like how important wood placement is. And like, Troy, if you're listening, thank you. But <laughs> I know we keep, <laughs> we keep plugging it, but no, Troy's stuff is amazing. You know, the, the extent yeah, to which is. a piece of wood has just this, He's like the Bob Ross of like vivarium builds. He's, <laughs> yeah, he's very good he at what is. he does and he's just so calm about it. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just like when you get a nice piece of, I mean, the generic term we use here is just driftwood, but like when you get a nice piece of driftwood, regardless of whether it is, it can really make or break a good vivarium. And I, there's actually been several pieces that I bought that I kind of played around with over and over and I wasn't in I was never happy with them. And I have just like these like gigantic pieces of Mopani wood as like paperweights in my house because I bought them vivarium builds, but I didn't like how they looked in the general layout. So (laughs) what I wanted to ask you was, you know, we kind of talked about some, some differences in terms of vivarium builds, but what is the hurt market like 
in Australia. I mean, here in the U.S., the exotics industry is big business, and we've got a lot of big box companies that cater to herps, or at least say they cater to herps. But can you find a lot of the brands that are available in the U.S. and Australia, or do you have to look elsewhere? Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, we can we can go to you know a local aquarium stuff. Like that. You can buy the Exoterras and, and Zoomeds and stuff like that. Exoterra is definitely uh, more popular and more common here than Zoomed. Um, but yeah, I mean, we we can find all that kind of stuff here. I mean, you know, the Exoterra UV lights and you know all the different calciums from Exoterra, and we yeah we we have all that stuff available here for sure. It's not cheap, um, but they do make a good product. Um, and I mean, I. When I first started off, I, you know, all my tanks were Exoterra at one point, but I, I soon phased them out when I started building these tanks because they just, you know, they they fit my room a lot better. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, we can definitely get Exoterra here for sure, just a bit more pricey. Do you guys have expos like we have here? We do, we do here. Um, we only have one once a year, and it's actually coming up in March. As long as uh, COVID doesn't uh, ruin that for us, um, we should have that up up and coming shortly. Um, and yeah, we, the amount of people that you get there is just incredible. You don't, you don't realize how big the hobby really is until, you know, you, you go to these expos and you see all the different people and, you know, even, you know, um, faces that you've seen before and, you know, meet a lot of friends and stuff there as well. And, but yeah, unfortunately we don't have them as often as, as you guys do there. Um, but, um, yeah, we do, we do have one here and then each state will have their own expos as well at different times of the year. Um, but yeah, mainly it's only that one once a year. We have where I live, New York has a, has a Metro Expo that's, uh, I think they do it maybe f- four or six times a year, maybe four. I think they do it like every three months, but that's been postponed because the site was converted to an, a, a COVID hospital, which which never ended up being used. But uh, God, I haven't been an Expo in. It's I think it's actually been over a year. I think it's been a, the last Expo I went to. I think was in January of. It was January of 2020, so it's been a long time. But expos here are getting to be pretty big. I mean, even just like my first expo I went to was back in I think 2002 uh, or 2003, and I was like, "All right, this is pretty cool. There's a lot of people here." And then as time went by, over the past like almost 20 years, like now it's like I mean, it's packed. There's a line down like several blocks just to get in. Yeah, no, that's that's cool. That's yeah, it's it's. They're, they're a lot of fun. It's, it's, it's a good way to really sort of push the hobby and stuff as well. And, you know, you get a lot of new faces there that, you know, haven't even really kept animals before. And, you know, they go there and they've got pretty much everything you could possibly think of there, um, you know, from all different enclosures, lighting, um, you know, different animals and stuff like that as well. And it's, it's a good wealth of knowledge as well. You know, a lot of people there really know what they're talking about. And, you know, you get a lot of, um, you know, um, breeders from home and stuff like that you know they go and sell their animals there and you get to talk to them face to face and you know how they keep their animals and stuff like that so it's definitely a, a, a good thing you know having expos and i wish we had them a lot more often here um but unfortunately like you know like covid last year that that shut us down so we weren't able to have that so i'm hoping this year we'll be able to uh you know have that expo and you know go and see what's available and what's around and all the new products and different things that are around so yeah, I'm I'm surprised with Australia being, you know, as big a country as it is that there aren't more Australian companies that specifically market t- to herps within the country. 
Yeah, I mean, it it would be really good if we had like you know our own our own tanks and you know you know people who build lighting and stuff here. But unfortunately, it's just yeah, no one really does it. And I mean, there are there probably are some companies out there. I'm kind of blanking at the moment for you know some of the names of these companies. But um, I mean, we don't even really have you know um shops and stuff that are just dedicated to reptiles here. I mean, you know the way we get our reptile supplies and stuff here is you know you go to a fish shop you know an aquarium and stuff like that and and sometimes they may have reptile stuff there available as well and maybe even some reptiles on site that you can you know purchase or even just have a look at but um yeah unfortunately a lot of our stuff that we get here it just comes from overseas it's just you know, i mean it's hard hard to beat some of the some of the products that come from overseas so what about feeders because here in the u.s I mean, the availability of different feeders, it varies from country to country. I, mean, I know in the UK, they have uh, locusts, which are basically, to us, they're grasshoppers. But we don't have those here. They're just not, they, they can't legally be, you know, bred or sold or whatever. Because we actually, I mean, the United States actually had a serious locust problem at like the turn of the last century. And it, I'm assuming that was the reason why we don't have them available here. Like, what kind of prey items do you guys have available in Australia? Uh, yeah, so I mean, we have uh, you know your you know rodents and stuff are like we you know pretty easily available for you know your snakes and all that kind of stuff. Um, but for the frogs and that, you know, we mainly sort of feed off crickets, cockroaches. Um, I don't really feed off mealworms. We do have them here, but I don't really like to use them too much. Um, but I mean, we use a lot of the, like the house flies and blow flies and that kind of stuff. The black soldier flies we have here um which i like to sort of feed to my animals quite frequently um but we don't get the um fruit flies here so you know, like no one build you know makes cultures and stuff here like you guys do um even dubia roaches we don't really have dubia roaches here either which i've heard are you know a really good food source for animals um so yeah ma mainly just you know your normal european crickets um you know, you know big those big black cockroaches um and yeah you know, just you know your normal flies that we can get here pretty much blow flies and house flies and that kind of stuff soldier flies um yeah so the fly angle i guess has kind of that's kind of starting here there's one or two companies that do offer um i don't know if you guys have these there but we're uh, green bottle flies and they'll uh, with green bottles and there's blue bottles. I can't remember which one they. I think they actually sell both, but they'll sell the like the spikes, which is almost like the larval form of it. I just I don't think people here really find it palatable to have like three different species of flies that are like pests in the house. I, I know some of the chameleon people do it. I personally haven't, but the black soldier flies have have caught on pretty well. They're a pretty popular feeder here. They're expensive though. Yeah, I mean, I've, like they. For here, like here, we I get my all my feeders and stuff like for my frogs um, through the amphibian research center here, um, and it just you know helps them out with you know breeding more insects and you know they do a lot of um, you know research and and you know helping a lot of um, you know frog species and stuff like in the wild you know to you know help help them go you know not you know become extinct and stuff like that and so I like to purchase my animals through them and I don't think really think they're you know, much more expensive than anywhere else. But um, I know that when I get my animal, when I get my feeders and stuff like that, they all come live. You know, everything's shipped extremely quickly. 
Um, and yeah, I mean the black soldier flies and stuff like that. They they're awesome. You know, they they're a good size fly, especially because a lot of the our you know tree frogs here are a lot smaller than you know your, your normal sort of green or you know the white tree frog and stuff like that. So you know, a black soldier fly um, is you know a good size meal for these smaller frogs. Um, so I do like to use those because they do fly, you know, obviously, and you know they don't drop down into the water like the crickets and stuff do. Um, so, but yeah, they they're awesome. I I don't like to feed um, the soldier fly larvae and stuff like that to baby frogs. I have noticed that um, when I do feed them, they get prolapses. Um, so I tend to stick to sort of smaller crickets that are dusted with calcium calcium powder and stuff like that. And then as they get older, I give them the the flies and stuff like that. So. Yeah, crickets have a death a death wish, especially with the pallet area. And we throw them in there, they're right they're right they're right in that water immediately and they last about ten <laughs> seconds. <laughs> and then the other issue as well is you go to grab them out of the water and then they start climbing down the background or the side of the tank underwater. I'm like, really? Just I'm gonna get you out and chuck you up the top, but obviously they don't know they're gonna get fed off, but yeah, they they'll just climb down the tank underwater. And so like, this is crazy, and you know, like the frogs try and dive in underneath and try and get them, and yeah, they got no hope. So <laughs> I guess there's a reason. It fouls up the water too, and yeah, it's yeah, it's not a good thing. So that's that's why like I like using like a lot of wood and stuff as well, and a lot of the plants that I use, like the salaginella and stuff like that. You know, the way it grows and the way it fans out, it it creates really good perches, and you know, you chuck the crickets in, they grab onto that and they start climbing around, and you just watch the frogs, you know, go hunting, and it's just. I watch these frogs every night when I, you know, every second night when I'm feeding them and I'm watching them like as if it's the first time I've ever seen them feed. It's just, for me, it's just the most enjoyable part of keeping the, the animals is feeding them. It's always, it's always fun when I, when I go into my frog room, that's really the, like the most interaction I have with them is, is, is feeding and it, it is gratifying watching them eat and just be themselves because like my, exp- I've never been a tremendous tree frog person, but. I mean, my experience is that they're generally, like, at least the species that I've kept, and I haven't kept a tremendous amount, but a lot of them are really inactive during the day. So when you do get to see them feed, it's nice because you get that brief snippet of interaction that you wouldn't normally get, like, the rest of the uh, the other 23 and a half hours of the day. <laughs> yeah, 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 well, that's it. I mean, yeah, that's the only unfortunate thing. I mean, I'm looking at a couple of my frogs now and they're they're awake and jumping around and stuff like that. But a lot of times they're sitting on the, you know, the front doors of the glass and that and they're sitting on the leaves that are, you know, right out in the open and stuff like that. So I can always see them and I could throw like crickets in there right now and they'll just spring to life. It's just, yeah, it's incredible. They They go from, you know, completely still tucked up, nicely suction cupped on the glass. And then as soon as you chuck cricket in, they're, they're off, you know, trying to get them and stuff like that. It's just, they're such cool animals. Which species are you working with? Uh, so I'm currently working, I think it's like seven different species at the moment. Um, so I have the common or your white uh, green tree frogs. Um, and I've got the, they're the blue color variation ones um so they got they're, they're sort of some of them are really blue and then some of them are sort of more aqua and then a couple of them are, are green and stuff like that as well but they're to me they're still one of my favorites they're just they're so bold they're such a big frog and i mean i feed them and then you know they just attack your fingers like they just don't care um so i've got uh nine of those at the moment um i'm also keeping the wild lip tree frogs or the giant tree frogs um, what else do I have? I have uh, banjo frogs, which are a bottom-dwelling frog. Um, I had a friend of mine gave me a whole heap of tadpoles, and 
I morphed them all out and I thought, well, I might as well keep them. You know, my daughter was helping me feed them, feed all the tadpoles and stuff like that. So I thought I'll keep them for her so she can kind of, you know, feed them and have them as a, her little project. I mean, she's only two years old, so I definitely know I'm going to be feeding them up. But, um, yeah, so I've got those. I have uh, southern brown tree frogs, which are a common species here in Victoria. Um, so I have the normal variation and the green colour variation in those. So I'm hoping to breed those this year because I've got quite a few people um, asking me to breed those because there's not a lot of the green ones in captivity. Um, and then I just have uh, dainty green tree frogs and red-eyed tree frogs, which are the Australian species. Okay, okay, I see. I was just thinking, I was like, wait a minute, because from what I understand, you're only allowed to keep native species in Australia, correct? Correct, yes. How does that affect the hobby? I mean, there's certain native species that are like hobby staples or... I mean, how many species do you really have at your, you know, available in Australia? So, I mean, we do have like a large, large number of frogs and stuff here, um, you know, all different shapes and sizes and colors. But, um, you know, still with the licensing system and stuff out here um, in Victoria and stuff like that, we're still limited to what species we're allowed to keep. Um, but we do have, I think there's... If I'm not mistaken, there's roughly 40 different species of frogs on license at the moment, um, and probably a little bit less than half of those are the tree frogs. Um, but I mean, yeah, it's, I mean, it, it's in a way, I think it's a good thing sometimes just being able to keep the Aussie natives. Um, it really allows us to um, really get a grip on how these animals live. I mean, we're pretty much living in the same environment that they are, um, you know, live around your house and stuff like that. And so it's it's a lot easier to sort of keep them in a captive environment compared to say if I kept uh, you know a frog from Peru or something like that you know I may have never ever been there in my life and you know trying to get all the you know the temperatures and stuff like that correct for an animal like that you know it might be a lot harder unless I read it you know in a book or you know you know research it on the internet so it definitely allows us to you know get a better hold on keeping these animals correct and. You know, in the proper way that we should. So, but um, yeah, we've we've got so many different species here. It's not funny. It's just, yeah, just being able to actually keep them and you know whether they come on license or not. So, are these species that are unique to a particular region? Meaning, like uh, you're in Victoria, right? Are you allowed to keep a species that might only be native to say, like the the Northwest Territory? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, with our license and stuff like that, we're we're allowed to keep. Um, other species of reptiles and amphibians throughout Australia. Um, so like the, the southern brown tree frogs that are local to Victoria, we don't need our license for them, so they don't have to be um, documented. But, for instance, the dainty green tree frogs and the red-eye tree frogs, the you know, your green tree frogs and the wild lips and stuff like that, um, you know, they, they need a license just because they're, they're not a local species to Victoria. Um, so they're more, you know, so your Queensland species and, you know, local to, you know, Northern Territory and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, I actually forgot. I actually have, um, Eastern dwarf tree frogs as well, which I'm hoping to breed in the near future too. So if, if you breed frogs, I mean, I, well, first off, tell me, tell me about the permit system. Cause I'm curious to hear more about that. Cause we don't really have anything like that per se. I mean, there, there are licenses and permits that vary by state to state, whether it's I mean, most of them are really reptile related, whether it's, whether it's venomous or, or large constrictors, there's licensing and whatnot. But I mean, the licensing situation is, is kind of universal in Australia, right? 
Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, each state have their own different regulations and stuff like that as well. Um, here in Victoria, we have a, a licensing system here. So we have a basic license and an advanced license. Um, so your basic license, you generally keep more species that are sort of a more commonly bred and more available in the hobby. And I, I guess they're a, a lot easier sort of uh, species to keep. Um, and then your advanced license is your sort of your harder species to um, keep. Um, you know, you can keep crocodiles and stuff out from salt water, the freshwater crocodiles, um, you know, venomous snakes, um, your larger like monodite goanna species and stuff like that as well. Um, and there, there are quite a number of, um, you know, tree frogs or frogs in general that are on, um, you know, the advanced license as well. And then every, from what I've heard, every four to five years, uh, we have a species list on what we're allowed to keep on those two scheduled licenses. Um, and every four to five years, that um, uh, the species list gets uh, looked at and we're able to get more animals onto that list through the advanced license. So anything that's uh, introduced onto that species list comes onto advanced and then a few of those species from advanced will then dwindle down onto basic license. How old do you have to be to file for a license? Uh, I mean, I was... 14, 13 or 14 when I applied for my license. Um, so I don't really think that there is a age. I think it's just more or less as long as you have uh, your, you know, your parents or, you know, to sign the, the papers and stuff out, the documents that you have to send off to get the license, as long as they are okay with it and you have your signatures and stuff like that as well, um, pretty much anyone can get it. But I'm pretty sure – from what I remember, um, you have to have your basic license for at least a year or two prior to getting your advanced license. Okay, I understand. My my line of thinking was I was just curious if, let's just say for argument's sake, you could only get a license at, say, the age of 16 or 17 or even 18. Would that kind of discourage people from buying or acquiring animals as like an impulse purchase? I mean, if you have to go through the effort to file for a license, that's one step that obviously shows you, you're, you know, you, you file for the license, you, you're kind of committed to providing for the animal's care. I mean, here in the U.S., we have issues with people buying animals sort of as like a, like a disposable pet. And it happens a lot at expos where people will buy an animal for cheap. I mean, a lot of times it's, it's usually bearded dragons, leopard geckos, um, a couple of other species. But frogs and amphibians get lumped into there because a lot of them are capped, uh, not a, a lot of them, excuse me while caught and they're available kind of cheap, so they end up getting sold as like a disposable pet. Do you guys have that problem in Australia? Because like, does the licensing process make people have to have more of a vested interest in caring for the animals, or do you still have people kind of treat them as throwaway pets? Um, yeah, I mean, it definitely definitely helps out with that. I mean, you know, you know, going for the license and stuff like that, there's, you know, a bit of paperwork you've got to go through, and then, you know, it takes, you know, a couple of weeks uh, you know, to actually get your license and stuff like that. And I mean, the when you have your license, that's one thing. But then when you say, for instance, I go to buy a species of frog from a certain person that's also a license holder, um, I have to write down their license details, uh, where they live, the species of frog that I got, and how many I got. Um, and then that gets log that gets lodged every uh, March of every year, thirtieth of March every year we have to send in a return uh, where we get our license from to show them what we're buying and what we're breeding and what's died throughout that year. 
So we have to keep a logbook of what we've got and what we've bred, what has died or escaped. And then we also have to yeah, send in that return form to show them pretty much what's been happening throughout that year. So it is it is definitely hard to, um, you know, just, you know, go out and buy a random animal and then just let it go because it's it's everything's logged. You know, they, they, they pretty much know everything that you've done throughout the year. Is the general public, I mean, here in the U.S., is, it's, it's, it's crazy, but given all those regulations and everything, I mean, is the public's attitude towards keeping, I mean, they're really not exotics, but is the public's attitude towards keeping reptiles and amphibians a little bit more favorable there than it might be here in the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, I guess... I don't really ever hear anything too negative about, you know, like reptile keepers or amphibian keepers and stuff like that. Um, I do know that we've had a couple of scares where, um, you know, they've tried to shut, you know, actually keeping animals as pets altogether. Um, but we just, yeah, we don't really have too many issues here. Um, yeah, I've never really heard of any, like, serious problems. The only issues we ever really have throughout the community is, is mainly when people have had exotics here um obviously illegally um and then that goes into the the media and stuff like that and that kind of you know dirties the water a little bit there but um majority of the time like the stuff with the you know your native species and stuff like that it's yeah it's, it's all pretty straightforward really that's that's why the licensing system's there is just just so they can you know see people's movements and you know see exactly what people are doing and you know people can't do dodgies and stuff like that obviously there's ways that you can do dodges and stuff like that. But I mean, yeah, for the most part, it's all, it's all pretty good. It's all very positive uh, throughout the community anyway. So, See, that's something I could get behind that. I, I could support that because, I mean, you know, obviously in the U.S. we have access to exotics and, and that's, you know, we do. And I, I think that, you know, when people look at legislation, it's very, very quick for people to say, well, we have to have, get rid of all the exotics. I mean, in my opinion, if you could have a licensing system that would take away the impulse purchase and the irresponsible people, meaning, you know, you have to file for a license before you can purchase this animal. I mean, even if it's just a formality. I mean, you know, I file, I file for my fishing license every year through the state. My saltwater license is free. You just have to register just so that they know that you're, you know, you're, you're part of the system. So it's like, you know, if you have a vested interest in it, at least in my opinion, I think you'd be more less likely to, you know, uh, you'd be more unlikely to act uh, irresponsibly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you, you always know that if you do one thing wrong that, you know, they can it, at any time, they can come and rock up to your house and demand to see your collection and, you know, check your logbook. And I mean, there's definitely penalties. You know, if you, if you do something wrong, you, you write something in wrong, you know, it's, it's all very strict in the way that it's, it's organized and stuff like that. I think it's personally a, a really good thing. It's definitely going to wean out the people who are only in it for, you know, one thing and it's either money or, you know, just because I were bored, you know, over COVID or something like that. But, um, you know, it's, you know, you, I, you know, like a lot of my mates and stuff like that, we've never really ever had any issues when it comes to, you know, um, you know, people coming and knocking at your door to, you know, cause you've, you know, you filled out a return form wrong or something like that. It's, you know, it's everyone. Everyone does the right thing, and I mean, as much as it, it's a big hobby, and there's a lot of us in it, it's it doesn't take much for that. You know, that that wrong thing to to spread, and you know, make the the hobby you know look bad, and you know, want people to close us down and stuff like that. And uh, you know, if we all work together and stuff like that, we can definitely sort of, you know, help you know keep 
you know, these animals that we truly love and even, you know, future keepers and stuff like that, you know, to continue doing the same thing. And you know, that's, I'm just glad that everyone does do the right thing. And, you know, you, you get the occasional people that don't, you know, from time to time, but you, you, know, you, can't, you can't stop that, unfortunately. So that's a universal thing here, here in the U.S. As of this moment, there is a tremendous amount of legislation that's going on, which will profoundly affect people's abilities to own reptiles, amphibians, and even birds and, and mammals. So it's a very, very delicate slope. But at this point here in the U.S., we are unfortunately in a position where many of our rights to be able to keep these animals responsibly is being undermined by the irresponsible actions of people who really don't have much to do with the hobby. So the dynamic in here is, and you know, I, I don't want, I don't want to go down this rabbit hole too much because there's a lot of people have already said what needs to be said. And, you know, if you want to support this, you, you know, you should know by now which directions to go in, but it's, it's interesting how, you know, I mean, at least what I would consider to be reasonable regulation in Australia kind of keeps the hobby afloat by taking away, you know, the, the just, uh, you know, if you, if you have, look, if you have to pay for something, then you can have a vested interest. If you have to go and cough up 15 bucks for a license and keep log books, I would do that gladly. You know I mean? You're not talking mm -hmm. about paying like an exorbitant fee and then having to, you know, I can understand reason, reasonable regulations. I mean, it's just here, it's like, you know, it's like getting a fishing license. You know, my, my marine registry, my saltwater license, I don't have to pay for it, just have to register. And my freshwater, it's like $35 American. And that money goes to, you know, maintaining the fisheries that I get to, you know, that I, I get to harvest as my right as a, as a, you know, a resident of the state. But it's, yep. it's, it's yep. interesting how over there, it's the community is a lot more, I guess, put together and welcoming. Because over here, it's just, we're, we're, in, we're in a bad sort here. We, we've we've kind of got to get our act together. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it, it happens everywhere. I mean, you know, there's, yeah, like I said, you know, there's been a few times where they have tried to sort of shut it down, especially Queensland at one point, a couple of years ago, they were going through that same kind of movement, you know, where, you know, they were trying to sort of shut it down or really limit them to what they were allowed to keep and stuff like that. And, you know, a lot of people kind of fought against it and, and won. And, you know, it just goes to show them that, you know, we're, we're not here just to be pushed around. We, we're here to fight for it. And we're here because we do, we do what we love. And, you know, it's, as long as we do the right thing, there shouldn't be any issues. So, uh, but I mean, like the licensing, you know, like here for a basic license, I think it's around $65. And for the advanced license, it's about one hundred and twenty dollars a year just for that license. Yeah, I mean, again, it's you know, it's not it's not cheap, but at least it put it puts you in a position where you're going to have a vested interest. I mean, if you're paying to have an animal licensed and you're paying to you know maintain it in captivity, you're not just going to buy it and then just turn it loose. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, yep. And I mean, like here, here, like a lot of the animals that we have on license. If any of those animals really escaped, I mean, they, they wouldn't be able to deal with our cold. I mean, during winter here in Victoria, it gets quite cold and these animals are all sort of fairly subtropical environment animals. And, you know, as soon as you get that cold, you know, come through, these animals are pretty much, you know, gone. So, What about non-native species? I know that you have a bit of a, a cane toad. Well, it's not a bit of, but you have a pretty significant cane toad problem in, in Australia. Can you can you keep cane toads in, or I don't know what you guys refer to them by as a common name. We we I've heard cane toad, marine toad. 
Uh, I think the sign. I think the scientific name is the genus is Rhinella. It used to be Buffo, but now it's. I think it's Rhinella marinus. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm. Yeah. I, I'm not too sure, but yeah. I mean, we're not allowed to keep them here at all. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't think a lot of people really do. I mean, there's a couple of zoos that have them on displays just to to show people that these are the animals that you know destroying you know majority of our environment and. Um, but yeah, they they definitely are an issue, and I think as of last year or the year before that they were documented, they were just coming into the very top of Victoria. But um, yeah, they they're everywhere. Those things they just. I remember I, um, before my wife and I were married, and she was living in the Northern Territory, and I remember going up there and we we're driving, and it was just cane toads jumping across the road like you wouldn't believe. It was just crazy how many you could see, and it's just yeah. It's, it's a sad thing. It's unfortunately, it's not their fault. You know, it's humans have you know intervened and you know done the wrong thing, and these animals are just trying to do what they would normally do in their natural environment. But unfortunately, they're decimating native uh, populations here, and you know it's, it's definitely a sad, sad thing. You know, people go around. They have you know times when people just go around and just clubbing them and you know, you know killing them off and stuff like that. Which, Yes. Yeah. As much as I'm an animal lover, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't personally do that. So I read some of the background on the, the introduction of the cane toad and just how it was, I think it was, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was to, I think it was to control another in, 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 uh, invasive species. The rationale was somehow they were going to, they were going to help with pest control and crops and then it backfired. They weren't eating the intended bugs and it just turned into a whole big, whole big disaster. I mean, you guys have, you have foxes down there too, right? That are also invasive foxes and rabbits, right? Yeah. Foxes, rabbits, wild cats. Um, yeah, all sorts. It's, we've got them all, unfortunately, but, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, they, they introduced the cane toes, uh, um, I think it was called cane beetle or something like that, and they were uh, decimating, um, you know, cane crops and stuff like that up in uh, Cairns and stuff like that. So they thought they would introduce this uh, cane toad to get rid of the um, bugs, but unfortunately they weren't eating those bugs at all because the bugs were eating the tops of the cane, but these frogs aren't arboreal. They're, you know, they, they, they lay on the ground and stuff like that, so, you know, they're not in the same area. So these bugs are chewing the tops of the cane and all the frogs are on the bottom of the ground and like they weren't able to get in contact with these bugs at all, so, which I'm assuming they would have eaten them, but they just obviously didn't realize that these frogs don't climb. So, Yeah, that's, that's now I, you're right. Yeah. That's what I remember reading. It was that they were maladapted to handle the cane beetle since they, since they weren't able to prey upon them where they hung out on the top of the cane. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's unfortunate. That's, that's the you know, like in back in those days, and the, they didn't have the research, and they they you know didn't have the stuff that we have here today. You know, you know they they obviously just didn't know, and they released them thinking it was going to do you know, good, and but yeah, unfortunately, it's now a big issue trying to get rid of them now. So, as far as non-native species, I mean, I know that you can only keep native species. We've we've kind of gone through all that, but. If you could, and this is just, just a hypothetical, I mean, I know that you've watched a lot of videos from the U.S. and Europe and whatnot. If you could keep a non-native species just hypothetically, which one would it be? Or, or, or which couple of species would it be? Um, I, I mean, I love all those the glass frogs and the mossy, mossy frogs and stuff. I think they're super cool. 
Um, there's one tree frog that I would love to keep. Is it's called a harlequin tree frog, um, and they're they're one of the only uh, frogs that can actually glide. Um, they're a really cool looking species. Um, but I mean, even to some of those dart frogs, the dart frogs are just awesome. I mean, um, I wrote down a couple because otherwise I would have forgotten them. But the um, Ufaga pumilio bastaminos, the red frog beach ones, they're they're just such a beautiful looking frog. Um, and then the Dendrobates tinctorius uh, tuma cameo, um, and the Dendrobates uh, tinctorius vanessa. They're probably the three dart frogs that I'd jump on straight away. I reckon. The tinctorius species are always a real, cl- are always a real crowd pleaser. They just there's so many different locales that, I mean, every every day someone's finding a new locale somewhere and just like the i mean everything from like uh like like oyapox which are kind of almost like a dwarf tinctorius they're really really small and they've got this kind of like deep blue and white coloration up to like um i think it's the matechos which are like this almost like bright yellow and they're like gigantic like they're you know you could fit them in the palm of your hand that's how big they are yeah that's awesome yeah that's so cool yeah the uh I mean, that's that's another reason why, you know, I follow Troy so much. You know, he does those live streams and you get to sort of interact with a lot of the people that, you know, keeping dart frogs. And sometimes I just sit back and listen to them. Right? Sometimes I have no idea what they're talking about, you know, because, you know, a lot of dart frog stuff. So, you know, I try and do some research whilst I'm listening to them. And, um, yeah, I'm kind of just living the dart frog hobby through other people because, right? unfortunately, we can't keep them here. And, um, but they're just such a such an awesome species of frog, and I mean, before I even sort of knew about Trog's, um, Troy's um, YouTube channel, I had no idea that um, you know dart frogs were awake during the day and not you know through the night. So yeah, you, you learn something. That's 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 why I like you know watching other people from overseas. You're always learning something new, even though you can't keep them. I just it's just the knowledge thing that I that I think I enjoy the most. It's definitely a a a, a, um, a big draw for people. The fact that dark frogs are diurnal, it's it's almost like a like a communal aquarium. I shouldn't say communal. I hate to use that term, but when you go into someone's home or business and they have this really elaborate aquarium that's planted and you've got all these different colorful fish in there, it just you just get to appreciate them. Whereas, like, I mean, my experience anyway with this, I don't have anything against tree frogs per se, but had a. Um, a red-eyed tree frog for a while and it was you know people really enjoy them i just you know it just kind of sticks on the side of the glass all day and i'll see it in the evening and whatnot but the dart frogs are just like it's it's total like black and white you know being able to see them during the day out and about many of the species and many of the locales are relatively bold i mean some of them aren't some of them can be flat out really shy and elusive but it's rewarding when you get to see them on the regular and not have to wait until it's dark out or for feeding only. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. You yeah, know, they're definitely definitely a cool species of frog and yeah, I mean I never even knew that, you know, dart frogs weren't poisonous, you know, after they're taken from the wild or, you know, bred in a captive environment, you know, just because of the you know, the certain insects that they're um eating and stuff like that. And I was like, that's just to me is just incredible. It's just it's such a cool species. Yeah, the the whole toxicity and captivity thing, that's usually one of the first things that people ask me is like, well, aren't they poisonous? I say, well, no, they're not poisonous in captivity because they haven't been able to get the same diet that they would have in the wild. And and they eat such a varied diet. It's, you know, just trying to maintain them on fruit flies is just, 
requires a tremendous amount of supplementation and whatnot because they're eating probably thousands of different species of insects in the wild. And in certain species that just they're able to sequester some of those toxins and they can put a hurt on you in the wild, but no, not yeah, in captivity yeah. at all. Yeah, no, that's awesome. That's so cool. Do you have any thoughts? Of, I mean, another another group of species that's really popular is uh, the Ceratophorus genus, uh, the horn frogs. We also call them Pac-Man frogs. Mm -hmm. Is that something that you have ever seen or had an interest in? I mean, I know they're not going to be available in Australia, but they're pretty popular here. Yeah, I have I have seen those. Uh, they're um they're definitely a really cool cool frog um i'm not sure are they the ones that um they've bred a special color variation and like one half of them is one color and one half of them is another color i have seen that there's there's a lots of different color morphs in there's a couple yeah. there's a couple of different species that have been worked with here in the u.s and they're actually really popular in asia i believe that in in china and japan and Probably Korea too. They're, they're like it's it's huge there. That's like a big niche. I mean, like I have some listeners in Asia who are like really like hardcore into that genus. You know, they just kind of like these little fat chunky frogs, and you know, it's just I guess it's just a bigger appeal over there than it is here in the U.S. But yeah, I've seen some pretty wild, um, you know, some wild looking patterns, and I I have seen that kind of like half and half. So, yep, yep. Yeah, it's, 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 I mean, I, you know, when I was, you know, it was a few years ago, I was, you know, really getting into all the special color variations and patterns in the carpet pythons. And I, I was really, you know, leaning into that direction, you know, and using tub racks and stuff like that to you know, try and get as many snakes as I could, you know, and I really, I really enjoyed it. But um, unfortunately, it was just that part of the hobby for me was just taking it away from everything else. And I, I really enjoy the morphs and stuff like that. But um, I definitely think the morph side of things in, like, the frogs and stuff like that definitely uh, attracts a lot of people to the hobby. I mean, here in Australia, we don't really have any, like, special color variations or morphs in uh, frogs at all, um, apart from, you know, the, the now the common, you know, albino spotted marsh frog or, um, you know, the blue color variation in the, in the green tree frogs and stuff like that. But... For the most part, we don't really have any special color variation. So whatever we really keep here is pretty much just, you know, it's natural look. Um, so, I mean, I'd, I'd like to kind of breed some cool color variations and patterns in, in frogs just to try and sort of help encourage people to come across because the movement in the frog hobby here is, is nowhere near as big as, you know, the snakes and the lizards and that. And uh, it'd be definitely, you know, cooler to get, you know, a lot more people involved because they're just – they're such cool animals and, you know, the, the way they live and where they live and how they hunt and, you know, they just, everything about them just attracts me to them. And that's why I've kind of pretty much got rid of everything else apart from frogs. Now I've only got one carpet python and a couple of frogs, uh, a couple of uh, turtles, sorry. Apart from that, everything else is frogs now. So well, that was going to kind of lead up to my, my next question, you know, here in the U S and I'm going to sound like a complete, like hokey, tourist when i when i ask this but i mean here in the u.s a lot of people my age we, we grew up watching steve Irwin, and mm -hmm. we always had the impression that australia was this absolute herp lover's paradise i mean now i'm i'm an adult i know that in reality many people live in cities and not everybody runs into a crocodile or a scrub python on a regular basis but i mean what's the experience with native wildlife like i mean do, do you ever go field herping do you ever 
you know, run into some of like the really like large and more impressive reptiles that Australia is known for? Yeah, I mean, yeah, we've, like you said, we've got you know, quite a fair few species here. And I mean, in Victoria, we're very limited to, you know, like snake species and stuff. Like that. And the majority of our snakes here, are, they're all, you know, venomous. We don't have any real carpet pythons here at all just because it gets a little too cold for them. Um, but, you know, like I'll take the dog for a walk and, you know, there'll be a nice piece of corrugated iron sitting in some long grass. And I lifted one up oh, a couple of months ago now and, um, there was a, a nice little uh, brown snake rolled up underneath and was just having a sleep. And then five minutes later, I woke up and saw this six foot two bloke standing over it and kind of freaked out when I kind of put the tin back down and walked off. But yeah, it is, every time I go somewhere, you'll see like a little skink run off or, you know, you'll find some frogs in the garden when it's finished raining and stuff like that. And I mean, I remember, I remember one time when I was really young and that same friend that I met, you know, just looking around for, you know, frogs and lizards when we were younger. Um, I remember being at his house and he just got a, um, a baby freshwater crocodile. And so I went up there to help him feed it and, you know, have a look at it. And we thought, that's so cool, you know, have a little crocodile in your house and that. And I was, draw I was riding home and, you know, the ride home was probably only two minutes and, uh, it was pouring down of rain, um, and I was as I was riding home, it was quite dark, and a car come around the corner, and I could see these little things jumping all over the road everywhere, and I was like, what were they? So I stopped and put my bike down, and I realized that they were giant banjo frogs, and they were just jumping over the road everywhere, and they were just getting flattened. I was like, oh, my God. So I ran, rode home quickly, dropped my bike, got a massive 50-liter clear tub, ran up there. And I was completely drenched. I had a little torch under my armpit, and all I was doing was just grabbing frog after frog after frog, chucking me in this tub. And I reckon by the end of it, I had probably 50 frogs in this tub in like five minutes. There was just that many I couldn't keep up, and the, the cards were unfortunately just running them over. And that, that was like I've never, ever seen that again since, and I was just like amazed at how many frogs were, that come out that night. It was quite a warm day. And then of a night time when the sun went down, it just poured with rain and these frogs just all come out looking for insects and stuff like that. And yeah, that was a, that's a night I definitely won't forget. But. Yeah, we have similar events here. It's, there'll be like this explosive breeding event. And here in the U.S. we'll have events where it's just like it'll, be, it'll pour rain in March. And then you'll get groups of sal uh, different uh, oh god which species of it it's one of the mole salamander species but they'll do this massive road crossing to the point where like the state actually has to close the road down because they you know the amount of traffic would just wipe them out so they actually close the road down so that these hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of salamanders can cross the road on this one rainy night in uh, in march it's it's i've never seen it but from what i've heard from people who have it's 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 pretty wild almost exactly like what you just described yeah yeah no that's really cool that's that's a good thing that's yeah that's uh be cool if more more places like that did those kind of things you know so yeah i mean a lot of times it's just a matter of looking for it you know I mean, yeah, people right. don't, I mean, here in the U S we have a, a tremendous amount of salamander diversity and not a lot of people realize that and they're active even in the winter. So you run out in the winter. I mean, it's, it's ice cold. You will run into salamanders if you're in the right place at the right time. Really? Yeah. Even during the winter when it's really cold. Yeah. A lot of them are, are active during the winter. All right. And are they quite sluggish or? No, they're, um, I mean, different species of salamander ha handle cold differently, but, but some of them, yeah. I mean, just, just to sum it up, they can, they can handle 
their body temperature going below freezing because they're able to, their metabolisms are able to function in a way that they don't produce ice crystals in their tissue. You know what I mean? Because that, that's how you freeze to death is you, your liquid turns to ice and the ice crystals, they basically destroy all the, all the cells. They're, they're able to not have that happen. So yeah, you will see them out like on the ice and in the snow. You know, I mean, in, if you're in the right place at the right time and the habitat is the way it's supposed to be, yeah, you can find them. Well, wow, that's incredible. That's incredible. Because I know, you, I know, eels are very similar. I mean, you can freeze them over, and then as soon as the ice, you know, dissipates, they come back alive, and or you know, they come back to life, and you know, continue on. And yeah, that's incredible. That's really cool. Yeah, there's a species of frog. I can't. Oh, I can't remember which one it is. I feel so bad. I, I can't. I can't cite the name. But yeah, they'll actually they'll freeze. They'll freeze for a couple of months and then they'll fall out and they'll be just as good as they can, you know, ready to go. That's awesome. Yeah, it's pretty wild. <laughs> That's so cool. I love, I yeah. love the, I love the scientific aspect of this stuff. I always, I always enjoyed that, you know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think that's one of the reasons why I've just been in it for so long is it's just, there's so much to learn. You know, you think, you know, there's so many frog species and they're not one, you know, or not two of them are alike. They're all so vastly different and there's so much things to learn about these animals. It's just, I think that's the thing I love the most is the knowledge part and, you know, doing the research and, you know, even just keeping them in captivity. You know, there's certain things you just don't read about that you see them do and you're just like, wow, I never knew they actually did that. And it's just, yeah, it's just such a cool, such a cool hobby. Absolutely. I mean, before we go, where do you see the amphibian hobby going in Australia in the next decade or so? Um, I definitely see it. I mean, you know, I've been in the frog hobby, you know, for like 19 years I've been in it, Um, you know, by kind of in and out with reptiles too. But within the last sort of five, six years, I've been just focusing on the frogs. I have seen a, a, a very different change um, especially now that people can, you know, create these really cool environments for them. And, um, yeah, you can definitely see people are starting to move more towards, you know, the frogs and stuff as well. And people are starting to breed and they, you know, trying to dive into some of the rarer species that are harder to keep. And, um, it's definitely a good thing. I definitely hope to see it, you know, get even bigger. Um, cause now that, uh, we're coming up to that time of the year where I can actually, um, you know, request, you know, a new frog species or a new reptile species onto the species list. Um, and there's a frog here that I've always had my eye on. Is um, It's called a fringed tree frog. Um, and so I'm hoping to write a letter into the, um, into the licensing um, and hopefully see if I can get that uh, frog onto license here in Victoria because it would be another cool species of frog that um, would definitely sort of pull people into the hobby for sure. That's cool. I like that, how you can petition to have species added. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, you know, the whole time I've, I've kept my license, it's, I've only ever known of one species that, that was new to come on license, and that was the uh, Magnificent Tree Frog, which is another large species. It's very similar to the White Tree Frog, um, but they, I think they get even a little bit bigger again. They get a lot more um, spots and stuff on them, and they get these really big swell, swellings over the top of their eyes, like eyebrows. Um, and they're another really beautiful species of frog. And that's the only one that I really know that's ever sort of come onto the license because so many people are sort of focusing more on the, on the reptile side of things and then the amphibian. So I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, getting this fringe tree frog is just, is so vastly different to any of the tree frogs that we can actually keep here today. 
Um, so I'm hoping that's something that I can kind of get my hands on in the future and hopefully try and pull more people into the, into this part of the hobby. So. Cool. Well, how can everyone check out your YouTube channel if they want to go on YouTube and check out your Vivarium builds? Yeah, so you just go onto YouTube, uh, type in uh, Vivscape. Um, you'll see me come up. Um, I've only got, I think, seven uh, videos on there at the moment, but I've got a lot more coming. Um, I'm hoping to do a room tour in the near future, um, and I've got a lot of lot more builds that I'm doing at the moment too, and you know, I kind of want to show people how I've set my garage out and you know, my frog room and um, so yeah, so definitely yeah on YouTube and um, Instagram as well, which is uh, Vivscape Viv underscore Scape, um, and I'm also on Facebook as well, but I'm not that sort of active on there, so it's mainly just uh, Instagram and YouTube. Good stuff, good stuff. All right, I want to thank Dean for coming on and talking shop with me about all things uh, hobby, Australia and US combined, and uh, I want to wish all of you the best. Catch up with you guys again soon.